economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, there's been talk of universal basic income. It seems to be a topic that ebbs and flows over since the last presidential campaign. Hasn't been brought up quite as much with the Biden administration, but there's certainly plenty of other policies going around on increases of safety nets and and other avenues that the government can help protect the poor among us. And so we thought it was useful to explore universal basic income again. We just attended a a short workshop or presentation, I shouldn't call it a workshop, a presentation from uh, one of our colleagues at Emporia State University help host an event from a a scholar from University of San Diego, brought some new things to my mind. And so there's a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of faith, a little bit of what we should do to help the poor or or if we should do anything. And so I think it'd be good to start off with our philosophy professor exploring some of the philosophical underpinnings of whether we should even attempt to do it, if, if that's a good thing to do from maybe some historical point of view from other philosophers. Great. So the universal basic income, you know, as Russ said, it has been in the news a lot. One of the things that I liked about Dr. Matt Zwolinski, who is the philosopher at University of San Diego, who gave the presentation on the uh, basic income, he wasn't specifically talking about the nuts and bolts of any particular proposal, but he is libertarian-ish. You know, he blogs at Bleeding Heart Libertarians. And so his goal is to try to convince you, if you are kind of a limited government, conservative, libertarian-leaning type of person, that you shouldn't dismiss the an idea of a universal basic income out of hand. And, and I guess for our listeners, that universal basic income essentially means every American would get some form of a check for free just some amount of money, then people might argue about what the amount of money is, but it's additional kind of safety net of just a cash transfer from the government to every American. That's the universal part of it. Yes, it goes to everybody. And on most proposals, it is a fixed sum that goes to everybody. The same amount goes to everybody in a UBI. That's what makes the UBI universal. It's universal both in its quantity and in its scope, right? It goes to everybody and everybody gets the same amount. So, you know, numbers have been floated out with things like, you know, $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month, but somewhere around that number, I think, is what people have been talking about. And Zwolinski is talking about the moral case for a UBI, right? And so this attempts to ground the justice of a universal basic income. Now, he starts out by talking about or I wouldn't say he starts out with, but at some point he does talk about kind of the duty that we have to help the needy. And that is something that our current programs, you know, we have a a number of programs like welfare and things that are supposed to help the needy, right? Um, So most people do think that the government has this charge that 
That's one of the legitimate functions of a government is to help the needy. And one of the things about those programs is that in order to qualify for them, you have to jump through a number of hoops. And if you are needy, it's, it's actually quite difficult to jump through those hoops. And some of the programs, you know, give you things like food stamps. Um, and one thing that, you know, economists will tell you is that cash is more useful to people than food stamps, right? And then another thing that economists will tell you is, you know, has to do with marginal utility and the marginal utility of dollars. And as Walensky brings up that, you know, one of the things that entails is money is actually more useful to the poor than it is to the rich, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, a, this is a, a theme in one of his proposals. Yeah. So which Jeremy Bentham, I think, brought up two ages ago. So that's contentious. Uh, Peter's groaning, but let's continue yeah. on, uh, Dr. Clark. So if we have a duty to help the needy, and it seems like dollars in particular will help the needy more than they will help the the rich or whatever, then that would kind of set the, that would ground a duty to help the poor, right? If the rich have dollars and dollars will help the needy, and it would also ground a kind of, we should have a prima facie preference for giving money to the poor rather than giving them things like food stamps or jobs or whatever. Because um, one thing we know is that, you know, we would think that individuals are better at determining what they in particular need. And money is something that is, you know, fungible and and you can do more with money than you can with a food stamp. Now, the the other thing that Zwolinski says, and here I think this is something that I think most conservatives or libertarians will agree with, is that the government is a very, is a blunt instrument. And it's very, very bad about making good decisions and good discriminations between whether or not somebody actually is needy or whether they're not needy. And so he points out that, you know, welfare benefits, there's something like 60% of mistakes that happen by the distribution of welfare are people's welfare being cut off when it shouldn't be, even according to the rules of welfare. Hmm. So so these are false negatives, right? Now, insofar as we think that we have a duty to help the needy, not helping people who deserve help should be a a big, uh, that should bother us, right? And that should actually bother us more than helping people who don't need to be helped, right? Because it's a bigger harm to withhold, withhold help to somebody who deserves it rather than to give help to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And So one of the things we should think is that, well, empirical evidence shows that we are withholding help from people that deserve help. And we kind of a priori have this idea that, well, the government's not going to be good at making these decisions anyway. Why don't we just instead, to make sure that the needy get help too, just send help to everybody? Um, Now, you would also say something like, One thing that that would enable us to do is to dismantle some of these giant social service bureaucracies that are set up ostensibly for the purpose of providing this help that we could provide very easily by just turning on uh, the money spigot to everybody, right? So maybe I'll I'll just stop there because I think that's a good point to start the discussion. And And, and I might jump in. You made me think about 
how it's related to the pandemic argument of getting money out. It's costly for the government to learn who needs help and who doesn't need help. And so there is real resources that need to be spent setting up uh, people that interview uh, people in need and trying to decipher that. And they still might not be that good because the people might be lying at the other end of the table and then we have, we really should test them or do some other due diligence. And so all of that is, is very costly to do. So I think there's a big benefit in having a program where the money goes out to everybody because it eliminates that cost, that part of the equation of, of learning it. And so, time's a huge part of that cost, and, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many businesses failed during, you know, the pandemic, during the time it took from, you know, oh, help is coming. Well, yeah, you know, I need to be and, and granted, I was it. one of the people that didn't like what the government did with the pandemic on all of us getting cut checks that didn't really need it. I, uh, but at the same time, it's kind of a similar argument, even though the pandemic arguably affected more people across the broad range of incomes compared to this being more targeted towards the poor. Yeah, uh, I don't know that much about UBI, but I just know that you everyone gets a certain amount of money each month or check, whatever it is. But what social programs will they cut to make up the money to give the UBI out, if that makes sense? Ooh, great question, Nate. That depends who you ask. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think this might be a good time to broach the subject of what I think my major issue is with this proposal. So in theory, you could go to like any, even like a libertarian person and say, hey, look, if we cut these programs, we end up having, we'll say the same amount of taxes or even possibly less taxes, but they're going to be used more effectively. Like that's basically the proposal right now is even if you think that taxation is theft, this isn't more taxation. This is uh, less taxation for even more benefit. That's kind of the proposal. It's, it's slated as like this win-win. The problem I think with this is, as uh, James Buchanan's whole critique of fiscal policy in general. Uh, so it's kind of ironic that he mentions this idea of like, oh, the diminishing marginal utility of money, and we could just have a progressive tax and give to the poor, and that'll raise the benefits to society. Well, Buchanan directly addresses this model of taxation at the beginning of his work and points out like, what you're assuming in your underlying analysis is that the state is interested in maximizing social welfare. And I don't think that that's true. <laughs> Buchanan says that politicians have their own interests, voters have their own interests, and bureaucrats have their own interests. And those interests are very unlikely to be the exact same as society as a whole's social interest. It just seems very unlikely. And in fact, there's good reason to think otherwise. And so my main issue with this proposal, Nate, based on your question, is I don't think that there is an incentive to cut social programs when this is instituted. I think that this will be instituted on top of everything else. And I don't see any reason why interest groups have changed such that these other policies are going to go away. So I see this as just bigger government, more spending, more welfare programs. Maybe if I could live in this world, perfect world where I select one option, UBI, or all the social safety nets we have right now, I push the UBI button, maybe. But we don't live in that world, and I'm not going to pretend that we do uh, for the an actual policy discussion. So I, I disagree a little bit that it, I think there's at least a chance it won't be supplanted by just continuous growth. So I'm thinking about food stamps versus food shelves. And I think if at least on the front end, a UBI gets presented that, okay, well, here's the trade-off, maybe it's through some bipartisan bickering or whatever, that food stamps disappears, right? Let's just, let's just pretend that it's only food stamps that disappear at this point, just for sim uh, simplicity. Then I think food shelves and other nonprofit organizations fill the void of the food void that maybe food stamps was there perceived. So all of a sudden nonprofits 
change their way of doing business, knowing that they don't have the food stamps and donors to both food shelves and otherwise step up a little bit and say, oh, they took away the food stamps for people with this new UBI and they're still going to need to eat. As irrational as I'm sounding, I, I mean, I think this is how real people think, not just, not just economists, right? And so they're going to step up and food shelves will become more plentiful. And maybe we never go back to implementing food stamps. I agree that I think that the private sector would more than be able to take, over, take that over. But think of what happens for these nonprofits. These nonprofits survive off donations, right? That means society is willing to pay for the nonprofit service. We as people are willing to give money to feed the poor through these nonprofits. If the nonprofit is doing this instead of the government, that means our willingness to pay is going towards an institution other than the government, which means if the nonprofit steps into the government space, politicians are getting less money. Those donations are representative of the fact that society would be willing to pay politicians to do the same thing and bureaucracies to do the same thing in higher taxes, so people, if people are willing to cede some resources to get this to happen, and politicians currently have those resources because we have the food stamp program, I don't think politicians want to cede that to nonprofits because they lose money and power if they do. I don't think it's dollar for dollar, though. I, I no, might, no, I, I agree, might buy I agree your that. argument there, but I, I think the, yes, I the weighting of what you just said would still favor my argument, I think. So, <laughs> of course, we don't really know, folks, and we'll never be able to empirically test this. So that's what economists get to do. We, we get to bicker back and forth on on things like that. So the other argument that I thought as Justin was going through, and then we'll head to a break here shortly is, well, they're just going to spend that money on bad stuff, right? So it's like, uh, if we just give them, if we just cut them checks, then they're just going to buy drugs and alcohol and, and other things. And it's going to be this downward spiral of life. And, and I guess my reply back to that is um, Justin's comment on the fungibility of money. I think bad people are always going to do bad stuff. Aren't we really trying to more or less help, at least with this particular program, help the good people who fell into hard times and good people are going to do better things with a cash transfer than, than what the others. The other people with the bad stuff, you give them food and then that's more money that freed up them to buy the bad stuff anyway. And so that's the fungibility argument. And so I hope people don't go down that path too much because I think at the end of the day, with the fungibility of whether you give in-kind gifts or in-kind money, the fungibility factor is going to cause bad people to do bad things. And we just can't let that drive the policy. And then we have other institutions with drug addiction and, and um, you know, help to aid with um, people that have under bad circumstances. Those will help fill the void, hopefully in a nonprofit way, by the way. Again, I think that's the direction we, we should head having the cash transfers there. So as a cliffhanger here, coming into the second half, how much should it be? And do we even have a prayer of ever getting there given this environment? We'll be back in just a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info.gortneyinstitute.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a special event. We're starting off with students uh, surrounding Urbit, which we've done a few podcasts on. Uh, students are going to learn how to digitally go off the grid uh, if they want to so that 
Facebook and other uh, intermediaries will not be a part of the picture as they can communicate peer to peer. So that's some of the exciting stuff, uh, exploring issues of privacy and uh, property rights that we do here at the Gortney Institute. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, so as we continue on massaging the details of potential universal basic income, Justin needed to kick off with some questions to both Peter and I. Uh, yeah, so one of the things Peter said, which um, I, I often hear is that we, the problem with UBI is that we are not going to get this choice between UBI or a large social safety net and large uh, social services. We get, we're going to get the choice of adding UBI to these things. And, and Peter said, and I don't even want to talk about that, having to make that choice when it's not really a choice. So my first question is, will you at least hypothetically answer the question of whether or not you would prefer UBI to social safety net. Like you said, maybe if I, maybe if I had to make that choice, I'd press the UBI button. Yeah. It, it depends on the particulars of the proposal, but I, I think that there's a more likely than not sort of like pushing the button thing going on. Sure. In the hypothetical world. Okay, great. Um, so now I can ask both of you the same questions uh, since I have permission to ask Peter the question. No. <laughs> Don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question is like, do you think that a UBI would be better than the current system. We could scrap the current system, raise it to the ground and just do UBI instead. Um, yes, for me, I can, I've been thinking that since Charles Murray's article and argument for it uh, four years ago in the Wall Street Journal, but it entails Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, every single transfer out there that the federal government does at least, I think I'd still be in line with some sort of federalism that maybe I'd uh, allow the states to have their opportunity uh, because it's more localized to do some transfers. But at least at the federal level, every single transfer program is out the window and replaced with the UBI. I think I can warm up to that. Of course, we'd have to see the, the details. He proposed a, a, a neutral amount so that essentially the new universal basic income would replace all those other transfer programs. Uh, I'm in. Okay, so just a reminder, Peter, this is a yes or no question. So I don't even need an essay in response to it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I can't answer yes or no. I mean, I, I can, but I wouldn't give you my real answer. <laughs> you just answered the last question and said well, you would answer well, yes or no. Well, I, like, I think the difficulty here is that if the question is, do you want a UBI that by definition is permanently sustained and not subject to political forces somehow, uh, like outside the laws of reality, then just exists, so then yes, maybe. Utopian. To, to, now we're having utopian arguments. To me, yeah. you're asking if like, you're asking, we've got a marble at the bottom of the hill and the marble on top of the hill. <laughs> Do you want the marble on the top of the hill? It's like, well, I don't know, is like any movement going to happen at all that pushes it off the hill and causes us to like fly off in some direction I've never seen before. Uh, so I, if, if, if the choice is between on top of the hill or at the bottom of the hill, Sure, on top of the hill, but I'm worried about the movement of the hill. Is that a yes or a no? Is the marble the yes at the I'm top? absolutely or? baffled by both of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let me move on to the second question now. So the second question is, do you think 
that the needy today would be better off with UBI plus the current system or just the current system? This should be easy for an economist because it's saying, uh, yeah, take X, well, I, add I, dollars to X. I, I'll tell you, it, it's not so not. easy for an economist because the first thing I thought of is the incentive structure changes with more money coming on top of the current. We're continuing to destroy incentives to do what's better for yourself and to say, let's call it slothful or don't look for a job, reduce the urgency. And really, that's not flourishing to me. So that, that's why I hesitated. Here's my hesitation. So was that? <laughs> <laughs> I want some substitution. I want some substitution. That wasn't my question. I, so I guess my answer is no. I Your answer I, is that the needy are worse off with the current system and a universal basal in, basic income. You know what? I'm going to say yes to that. It, because I feel like we're already at that point where they're can sustain fine and more money added on top, on top of what already we have will leave them in a worse position holistically. The needy today would be better off. The needy in 10 years would be worse off because I don't think that the country can afford both systems at once, um, which would mean that uh, we'll have to increase tax rates, uh, which is going to have distortionary effects. And I actually think we'll hit the end of the Laffer curve and we'll start to lower tax revenue. I think we'd have to inflate to keep up with both of these policies at once. And so let's say in theory, I'll say yes to your first question the UBI by itself better than the current system, but no to this because I don't think we can afford both at once. So again, though, the question is, would the needy be better off? So, and you are saying if we look at the needy over a long period of time, that answer is no. Correct. Yeah. And I'm saying even over a shorter period of time, no for me. Okay. Well then uh, the good we news- We measure more than dollars, it turns out, right? Favorite the good news for both of you is, Russ, you started out this discussion thinking you were an advocate for the UBI. And now you're not, right? I might be, yeah. And so, Justin, tell us, because you were already on, maybe it was on the break. So you were starting to warm up to the idea that maybe you would prefer, even if worst case scenario, it's UBI is totally added on top of the the current safety net. Yes. So I think the answer to both of these questions is yes, um, that it would obviously be preferable to have a UBI um, rather than our current system and that it would obviously make the needy today better off if we gave them UBI plus the current system. I also think that uh, you know this constraint that it seems like people talk about with, well, taxes would have to go up um, and you know we would need uh, to justify the spending somehow. I don't think that that constraint gets met um, with spending that goes on in uh, you know, on the, the military, uh, for almost any other part of the government. So I am willing to say, sure, throw this on top of the pile. I don't think the United States is in, uh, you know, a healthy fiscal situation, um, re- even so remotely. In, instead of running at the fiscal cliff at 70 miles an hour, you're up for running towards the fiscal cliff at 100 miles an hour. We have run off the fiscal cliff a long time ago, and we are like the coyote who hasn't looked well, down. Let, let, let me challenge this a little bit, because I, yes. I'm, I have a little bit of a disagreement here. No, normally, I'm a very big hawk on military spending, but I, I just did a Google search because I didn't know off the top of my head. But it looks like in 2019, the U.S. spent $718 billion on the military. Very big number. Universal basic income, 300 million people, $1,000 per month. 
that would be 300 billion per month. This way, this blows military spending out of the water. This is in three months, you've more than spent the entire year of military spending. So we're talking like more than four times the military spending. This would be the biggest single spending in like United States history. On yeah, anything. $500 a month was penciled out by Dr. Zelensky at uh, 1.8 trillion, if I remember right, per year of universe play, which it totally isn't fair because again, that's holding constant tax revenues where they are. What would really happen that I wanted to bring up is that you know, Bill Gates, even Russ McCullough is not going to be getting, let's just call it $500 a month, uh, because what will really happen is the tax rates will increase slightly so that maybe I pay 500 more as long as I'm making, let's just pull a number out of the air, 100 grand a year or more as a household then your UBI is really a little bit fictitious. Yes, you're getting the check in the mail, but your IRS tax liability come April 15th was actually at least that amount higher due to a change in your tax rates. So it's a little bit um, misleading really to say everybody's getting a check. And I think what Dr. Zelensky did is he took i I'm using the wrong last name, so I apologize. Uh, the 300 million people times $500 a month equals 1.8 trillion. That's really misleading in a sense. Well, just to build on that for a second, one of the reasons you're right that Zwolinski is saying um, another objection to the UBI is, wait a minute, why are we giving rich people money? And he's saying we can, we can change the tax structure just a little bit to make that disappear. Right now you might say, well, how's the, you just said the government doesn't work very well. You know, it's not, it's a blunt instrument. How can it do that? The government isn't great about knowing who needs help, but the government has set up a huge apparatus to figure out who is making money, right? <laughs> so it actually can determine who is, has an income above a certain amount with much better degree of precision that it can determine who actually needs the money. Right. So uh, if we want it to be making discriminations, maybe it's better to have it be making the discriminations on that end. Yeah. Which, um, so, I, I mean, in that respect, that's where I start to warm up with a sub, some sort of substitution. All, that I want, all I'm asking for is for one government program to disappear that we're not spending money on, right? I want government spending to go down by some amount to get me on board rather than piling it lock, stock, and barrel on top of everything else. I think that would be destructive and I'm still holding to my answer that I won't do it unless there's some substitution. Just something, that's it. I was yeah. gonna say it would have to be pretty extreme for me because again, this I'm is- I'm willing a, to take a baby step. It's a large increase in spending. And it's true that we can tax more to a certain extent, but I, I mentioned in my comments, so my fear is that we, we hit what's called the Laffer curve at some point. And listeners, the Laffer curve is the idea that when you raise taxes past some rate, your tax revenues are gonna start to go down. If the extreme example is if you set a 100% tax rate on all income, obviously no one's going to pay this tax because if they do, they die. So either they pay and they die or they don't because they don't want to die. Either way, your tax revenues are going to be zero in any sort of long-term situation. And so your tax revenues increase past 0%, but they start to decrease at some point. And my thought is that if we're increasing our spending, I think like 20% is what the UBI would do, maybe a little bit less with the $500 a month then we're going to have to increase taxes so much that these rich people are going to move their capital to other countries. People will literally leave the United States and start moving to other countries themselves. Right. I think tax revenues are going to start to go down and you won't be able to pay for the proposal, like in a literal sense, not right. in a... I need to push my argument further because I don't think I'm 
hitting home here, even for my colleague economist friend here, Peter. So let's just say we're trying to help the poor, right? So let's just say that it's $500 a month, but if you make $30,000 a year as a household, your income tax goes up to 250, essentially reducing your UBI benefit to 250. But when your tax goes up, you work less. That's what I'm talking about. With I don't think at that it. level, well, uh, it, it, it's significant enough to to have that type of impact. But look, look at marginally what we're doing. If it's 250 bucks more on $30,000. But the tax is gonna go up a lot for rich people under this paradigm and rich people have the most mobile assets. So I do think that we hit the Laffer curve. I think that would more. need to be determined though. Uh, if it, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's an open question. I agree. Uh, okay. But I, it's such a large increase in spending. I have trouble believing that we're not going to at least approach that level. Fair enough. Yeah. And I, I don't have enough data to, but you, you see and, what and I'm I, saying. And I, and right? I, don't, I don't either. Right. We yes. haven't crunched the numbers, yes. but that would be an interesting way to do it is just, it's really a poverty UBI. We're trying to target, that group. So yeah. what does that look like if we're capturing people making incomes over 30,000 and disappearing on them, then we're back to well, kind of a normal poverty program, right? I mean, if poverty levels 20,000 or somewhere in the 25, if you're a family of four or something, you're already paying zero tax and you're getting a possibly an earned income tax credit that it's essentially a yeah. negative income tax, yeah. uh, which is what Milton Friedman argued four years ago. I, I do want to say, and I don't want to get away from this because none of us in this room, I think, are of sort of like a very, uh, you know, popular libertarian position. Maybe Justin would consider himself uh, in this camp, but may, maybe not a sort of like a Rothbardian non-aggression principle. Because one thing I want to point out is that if you believe in the non-aggression principle that you shouldn't be aggressed against uh, so long as you don't aggress against someone else, maybe is a good way to put it. Um, if you believe in that non-aggression principle, then Justin biting the bullet here and talking about both ands as opposed to either or, he's effectively abandoned the ability to talk. I, I, my personal belief is abandoned the ability to talk to these libertarians who are sort of Rothbardians. So Zelensky, or I, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know his name very well, but he, he, his proposal that he was trying to market to libertarians is, look, we could have a smaller government program. So there's actually less theft this way, less, less aggression. And I will say that if we... Uh, say, well, both ands, let's keep the programs and UBI, and, and maybe that'll make the poor better off. Well, a libertarian or a Rothbardian might say, well, maybe the poor will be better off, but you're stealing to do that, and that's not all right. And so I don't know if Justin had any thoughts on that. Um, personally, I, I'm not really, uh, I wouldn't consider myself some sort of strict Rothbardian, so uh, I don't have that challenge. But I imagine a lot of libertarians, if they do listen to this podcast, will think of that. So do you have any thoughts? Uh, I used to be one, um, not anymore. Um, but I would think that um, the whole proposition might be a non-starter for a Rothbardian period, right? Um, who, uh, if you are not willing to say, um, um, you know, why would a Rothbardian uh, even agree, consent to something that is uh maybe even slightly less theft. I mean, one Rothbardian answer is, well, less, less theft is better than more theft, so I'll agree to that, right? But uh, another Rothbardian answer is, I'm not going to agree uh, to get sanction any type of theft. Sure. So the, uh, and I take it that that's the stronger position. Yeah. And um, so I, I think the, the whole proposal will be a non-starter to them anyway. Okay. And so since I think that you have to, you know, 
meet people where they are in argument. Um, to even entertain this policy, I think you have to uh, agree to um, either be somewhat wishy-washy or, or give up that principle a little bit. Okay. Um, well, and the strong Rothbardians would be in such a minority, it doesn't matter, they'll be outvoted. So from the grand scheme but, of things. But uh, yeah, the only reason I brought him up is because- in a democracy. Yeah, the only reason I brought him up is because it's that libertarians are the people yeah, that yeah. Zawinski's trying to talk right. to, and I think it's relevant right. yeah. for this. So I want to bring up another little angle that might not be popular with everybody, but to me, it just makes perfect sense once again, is that if we go with the universal basic income, another area of savings that would offset is social security in my mind. So if you're currently getting a $1,200 social security check, you're a retired person and you've got 1200 coming, you now get 700. You're, it's completely neutral to yours. There's a new government program, it's called UBI. And so we, you were getting a $1,200 check, it's going to be reduced by the amount of the UBI. And I, I think rationally people would start to do that. Of course, the first thing was, you're taking my social security. No, we're not, no, we're not. We're just changing the framework. And that's gotta be a huge number too. Uh, in terms of government spending that would help offset the negative effects of this. would be big relative to like normal dollars and cents talking. I think small relative to the policy as a whole, because we're talking the percentage of the population that's over age 65. Uh, and then you have to subtract out the fact that interest is accumulating on the $500 for everybody who is losing that $500 in their social security. So I actually think it might be sort of small uh, because if I'm getting, instead of, $1,200 in social security as a 20 year old, if I get 500 of that 1200 today, well, that means the government's losing 500 in interest over like 60 years or 45 years. Where is this, where's time. the interest coming from? So if you give me part of my social security benefits today, if you give me $500 in social security today, yeah. instead of on my check, that means the government's giving me an interest-free loan compared to our current system for 45 years. No, hold on, time out. So I'm talking about the payouts of the 500. So currently a retired person's getting 1200 and mm -hmm. the government is cutting a check for 1200. Now the government's gonna have one checks cut for 500, one checks cut for 700. So okay, so you're talking about just for retired people. Just for retired I people. See, oh yeah, 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 I'm not talking about the young people. I'm talking about saying. the current, current people now. And then it doesn't stop with social security folks. Other supplements that are currently government uh, cash outflow would be adjusted by yeah. the amount of the UBI. Yeah, and, and, and we start and, to add up some significant and, dollars and, that way. And we're getting into replacement, and I think this is an interesting conversation. Russ wanted to go, yes. But I also think there's a lot of people who work at the Social Security Administration who don't want to lose their jobs, and so I don't think this will work. Oh, that's too quick. That's a small amount of people. Did they garner that much power? The people who are working at Social Security. I think they probably have a pretty big budget with that bureaucracy, which means they have a lot of rents to lose. I think that that's probably. A, it could be. I, I, could, I could be wrong. Um, Justin? So um, I actually think that, uh, you know, what Peter just said about um, people not wanting to lose their jobs. I think that's an underappreciated uh, thing about the UBI that um, these uh, large safety nets are not just providing uh, help to the needy. They're also providing jobs to a large number of people who will not want to lose them and who I think have uh, much more um, power uh, to maintain the status of their institution. Um, so there's a concept called institutional nesting 
you know, which is that institutions always try to feather their own nest and, and make sure that sure. they're, they're uh, that they stay, right? Yeah. So, um, but uh, I, I wanted to talk to change the subject for a, a second and just talk about um, possibilities for even trying this out. Because one of the things that I take it is that there are some disagreements between the three of us and even the two economists about what uh, the effects of this policy would look like, right? And so one of the ways that we might want to figure out what those effects are, are to uh, try it out, right? And we could do that um, on a couple of different ways. One of the ways you could do this is by uh, trying it out like at a state level. Like Alaska. I mean, Alaska is does have a cash grant coming. They're one of our only states, I think that doesn't. So yeah. And then there, I mean, you could also try it out at the federal level, right? If you try it out at the federal level, that can be dangerous because you're putting all the eggs yeah. in the basket, right? But if you try it out at state level, one of the things that's hard about that is all those things that Russ was talking about, um, like social security, those are federal payments, right? So then we have to figure out how do we do this kind of substitution if it's going on at a state level? Yeah. Um, furthermore, states usually have to run, uh, you know, I believe more balanced budgets than the federal government does. Um, and so their ability to kind of, you know, they can't just, uh, even if it, you know, they, can't, they can't inflate it away or anything like that. So even if we might want this experiment to run at a state level, if that would make the most sense, because, you know, to see if it works, I'm not sure if that's even feasible. So I would like to get your guys' ideas on, I mean, your answers could be, like, you know, we could run it at a state level or we, it would be best to run it at a state level. And since we can't run it at a state level and running it at a federal level would be a disaster, we shouldn't do it, right? Um, so I'm just I'm curious as to your guys' thoughts. Um, I, th I think the state level stuff would be at such a smaller scale that it wouldn't give the empirical results we're looking at to, to try to really get a feel of how it would work. But I might be wrong. I mean, if there's enough state cash grants going so that there's some sort of substitution, maybe that's possible. But um, uh, certainly the the program that I'm not in favor of, of just adding it on on top of everything would do what you're talking about. And we can see if it was a disaster or not, if, if a state, you know, does a UBI on top of whatever they're doing. But I think the substitution thing will be a little bit harder to cull out without these big institutions with big money of like Social Security being at play. I'm a born stick in the mud here, so Justin's gonna hate my answer. But it, it, it's it, not it, the marbles again. Is it? it's, not, it's not the marbles. Those related to the marbles. To be totally honest with you, um, I I look at UBI because I don't believe practically that UBI on a national scale can be implemented with enough substitution to make it viable. I just don't believe that we have the uh, the voters have the same interest group power as these organizations whose entire you know foundation is these welfare programs. I don't think that's possible. I think any conversation surrounding the legitimacy of a UBI from a libertarian perspective is ultimately damaging to a certain extent. I think that people who go around and say, look, in an ideal world, wouldn't it be better if we had UBI instead of these safety net programs? I think that all that does is normalize in our conversations as libertarians, the possibility of like something that can't realistically happen. And it makes it like a legitimate thing to talk about. So when we talk about state experimentation, I don't want that because I don't want it on a federal level. I'm not interested in the state experimentation. I don't want people to talk about it on the federal level because I think the non-starter is I don't believe that these interest groups are gonna let go of their nice you know, other programs. And I don't think we can afford both. 
I'd, so that's my stick in the mud answer. I'd actually add a further stick in the mud as you were thinking or as you were talking that um, I think the root problem is that we, it, the spending and gifts is at the federal level to begin with. So by having state level experiments, it's fundamentally different than the problem we're trying to address. So I have a, a couple comments. Uh, first is that um, uh, this reminds me a little bit about um, the libertarian position on immigration, which is, uh, or at least a libertarian position on immigration, which is open borders are great. The problem is the welfare state, yeah. right? Um, as, as long as we get rid of the welfare state, uh, we can have open, open borders, borders and yeah. it'll be fine. I, that and, was one of my early arguments uh, that I didn't even get to bring. I'm glad you brought it up. And uh, and oftentimes, you know, libertarians will make this argument and they'll go, look, we're in favor of open borders. Uh, we just want to dismantle the wel welfare state. And the response <laughs> is, great, we'll give you open borders and the welfare state. Are you happy now? Right. And, uh, you know, the response to that has to be something like order of operations matters here. Right. We can't do these things out of order. Yeah. And so I take it that the um, part of the uh, animus towards even talking about the UBI is just like, look, uh, and this is, you know, both Peter and Russ's position, we can't have both of these things, right? Um, and it doesn't seem like this thing is going, the giant welfare state is going anywhere. If you can really convince me that this is going to stop, um, then we can have that discussion, but not before, because uh, you know if I give an inch here, I know mm -hmm. that it's going to uh, be I'm going to be taken for a mile. Um, and the corollary to that, and this is something that I think Russ was just bringing up, which is like, look, it, it would be nice to have these uh, experiments at the state level, but part of the problem is that over the past 200 years, things like aiding the needy has just been usurped by the federal level. Yeah. And really, the last hundred years, for that matter, Great yeah. Depression era. Um, and since that has happened, uh, you know, that is both the cause that the UBI is supposed to try to fix, right? That the federal government isn't good at helping needy people because it's a really blunt instrument because um, it's at the federal level and can't tell who needs what. Um, and it's also a reason why we actually can't uh, run the UBI experiment because it's it will be it too big of a federal level. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think those problems are related and maybe that sets up a, a further discussion about, well, uh, if things have become too, too centralized, maybe we should have a discussion about decentralization and federalism. And then we're back to our federalism podcast, which we almost did today. So, well, that looks like a great place to wrap. I'd like to thank you all for listening to this production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. And uh, if you feel so inclined, a five-star rating helps other people find our podcast. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.